if suddenly there were additional sermons, there'd be a minister with the skill to cut her sermon back. But that's a different place today. I am preaching from notes and I will keep an eye on the clock. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It works so well. <laughs> As Jim is up there advancing the clock. So in some ways this is a bit of a true confession. I was not surprised by the election on Tuesday. It's based in part on my gut. I remember, for example, in Flint, Michigan, that long before I got there, there had been an insurgency of Ted Kennedy against the Carter administration. And Flint was a big battleground. There are lots of people who were willing to say we don't necessarily have to go with the front runner among the Democrats. We might go another way. And it may have been true at a time that the Midwest was solidly UAW country and solidly Democratic, but let's be real. There are governors, Republican governors in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, that we can't just rest on what was. And in my gut, I knew from some of the relationships that I had in, in the Midwest that there was a lot of Midwestern nice that might be going around. A lot of places where somebody might not tell the truth about who they were voting for were a pollster to ask. A lot of people who would say they were still undecided when that just wouldn't be acceptable. So on some level, I was not surprised. And on another level, I was entirely surprised because where my heart was hanging on was to the possibility that the way to get through the Electoral College was going to be so tight, there was no way that Donald Trump could win all of those states, which he did. If not, winning the popular vote. So I was both not surprised and I was surprised. Then again, true confessions, there has only been one president that I voted for that I really wanted who won. It's true. Um, you know, it used to be a good indicator. If Olson was voting for him, they were going to lose. <laughs> and there were times where I had enormous marks on either side of my tightly held nose when I voted for somebody who won. But it wasn't like I brought a lot of heart to it. I brought a lot of desperation, mostly. So I've lived most of my life understanding that my views were not being expressed in the White House and knowing instead that there was just work to do. Just work to do. If anything, 
the blinders I had on about the very narrow way that uh, the Republican candidacy would have to uh, follow to get to victory was, a, was me not paying attention to the fact that millions of people feel screwed in this country. And among them are certainly the members of my family who have lived with deindustrialization, have lived with the renegotiation of pension plans. I think of my brother John, my brother John, whom I love so much, who's in Bethel, Maine, and between age 50 and age 60, he was employed half the time. Between age 50 and age 60, he had health insurance less than half the time. He's at a place right now in his life where he could so easily feel just screwed by the system, just screwed by the way things are. I will say it was a saving message when he called me on Wednesday and expressed his despair. I was real happy that one of my struggling white kin had found a way not to take the answer, not to take the candidate who promised an easy answer to his situation. Millions have lost hope. And I think of the, the wealth gap. Not long ago, 1% of the people controlled 20% of the wealth. And now 1% of the people control 41% of the wealth. It ain't getting better. The wealth gap today is larger than it's ever been. A couple years ago, the wealth gap exceeded what it was in the 1920s when we began to imagine and implement a graduated income tax that was gonna do some leveling. And in 100 years, we, we haven't done it. Millions of people are finding that the system as it functions now is something in which they cannot have hope. And I wonder if we have even offered hope. I'm going to argue with people in this room that I love. A few years ago, I had a little run-in with my congregation. You might know that I'm, well, I always have a very easy relationship with my congregations. Um, and, uh, and my loving congregation in Boston, almost to a person, wanted to just have a big declaration. He's not my president. And you, I'm, you know, I'm trying to remember which one it was, uh, because for them it would have been true all of the time. And I argued and said, He's the only president that we have. Now, I also said, the fact that he is the president means I need to argue well against him, and I have to amass the kind of power that's going to upset the kind of power, limit the power that that person has in that office. But I felt it was too easy, if feeling good, <laughs> to just hold up the light bright light of truth and say, not my president, which entirely true about my heart, was not true 
about the fact that I, as a member of the opposition, had been unable to help us not allow that person to be elected. I've had the good fortune in my life to have some amazing teachers. And one of my teachers was, for just a time, was Mr. Cornell West. And Dr. West asked this question, how can it be that a people can survive with a culture intact after centuries of enslavement, the Middle Passage, the false promise of reconstruction, and the imposition of Jim Crow, old and new, and still display the creativity of gospel and jazz, the truth of hip-hop and gospel, and a literature that speaks to the whole of humanity. This is a people that meets evil with promise, catastrophe with hope. So it's my conviction that we must be people who offer hope. And that a part of our offering hope will be to investigate and live into and discover how it's true for us, these seven principles of black lives. When we think of that first principle that says not only do black lives matter, but that all black lives matter. That we can't, as a Unitarian Universalist culture, limit ourselves by talking about the black folk who can assimilate into the culture, the white privileged culture of Unitarian Universalism of the past. But we need to be talking with people who are going to sit in the room and challenge us. We're talking to people already who are not assimilated into Unitarian Universalism. And maybe lots of us are feeling a way that we want to not be assimilationists. But instead, I hope to be liberationists, not just liberals, but liberators. liberators. We must offer hope for all kinds of people, because all kinds of black lives and all lives matter. I think the basis of our hope has got to be the fact that there's some power in this room. Spiritual power, yes. Intellectual power, of course. But I think missional power. Power that says we don't come here just to be entertained. We come here to be put into service. Serving this city, serving this country, serving our best ideas. Willing to put ourselves on the line. Willing to go to Washington and carry those not my president signs. Thank you very much. We couldn't do it without that willing to examine our own prejudices, to examine the way we think the world ought to be and then look at the world as it really is. The power that we have when we're connectional with other missional people, when we not only see standing on the side of love as a wonderful t-shirt, 
but we actually imagine how is my activity a standing on the side of love event and how do I use that to connect to other people who love that t-shirt. It's missional, it's connectional and relational and it's about us building power, building capacity with one another to be strong in the message that we need to give at this time. When the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry of Maryland holds, participates in Moral Mondays throughout the legislative session in Annapolis, how are we going to be present? How are we going to talk about the issues that are important to us in the venue that is most responsive to us right now? I'm going to say that I want us to think about reconnecting with Bridge, Maryland. I want us to think about how we can be trained in the ways of relational organizing that will make us a stronger church and will increase our capacity in this city by being related to other congregations. Congregations who don't see the world exactly the way we see it in many ways, but who see it close enough in terms of wanting, knowing that their power is not great enough to get what they want in the world, us knowing that our power is not great enough to get what we want in the world, but figuring a way for us together to negotiate what will bring us all forward. I want us to reconnect with Bridge, Maryland, and I want us to think about that very seriously. The church of yesterday, which we love, and whose story we will tell again and again, is not sufficient for today. The church of yesterday is not sufficient for today. Now the weird thing about that is I'm also going to say the church of 10 years ago is not sufficient for today and the, years, the church of five years ago is not sufficient for today. So this is not just about history bashing but it's saying that only we can confront what the world is today. That's what our grace is. That's what our calling is. That's what our great joy will come out of. That we can look at ourselves and look at the world and be meaningful, be responsible, be effective. See the making real of the vision of this place as key. to undoing some of what Tuesday might have meant, to engaging the challenging voices, many of whom have this color skin, many of whom have this gender identity, the forces that would speak to fear and hatred and superiority and isolationism can be met by us. Can, and can be met not just by our good feelings and our love and our wonderful t-shirts, but can be won by us showing the world that this faith is a saving faith. 
that this faith wants us to live responsibly on this earth. We want to stand with people who believe in clean water and fresh air and who believe in the future possibility for all the species. That's who we are. And we have to change ourselves so that we can actually begin to implement that. Our faith is the faith that says engaging with young people in a tough school in East Baltimore is a way of lifting them up and lifting us up and lifting our future up. That the encouragement that you and I can give to a trans person who feels there is no church that can welcome them, we can welcome, we can give people a place we can equip each other to do the work of liberation that is essential for our future. My essential conviction is that as this congregation moves away from an assimilationist model toward a culturally competent pluralistic model where sometimes white folk can get out of the center of things, and where all of us can stand around the circle and look around and see how the power is arrayed. You know, the Universalists did a brilliant thing after the Second World War. They changed their symbol. It still had a cross in it. But when they drew the circle around the cross, they moved the cross to the side. They had to decenter Christianity to discover universalism. And what did they leave in the center? Mystery. A big open space that the mystery might break through. As this congregation decenters whiteness and finds a more pluralist way of being in the world, I believe we will be a model for others, yes, but I believe that we will actually be changed, you and I. And as we are part of the world, then the world will be changed. I had the great fortune to study with Vincent Harding, the late Vincent Harding. And I love this quotation that he gave. And he said, we can't sit back and celebrate Martin and ask when there will be another one like him. No, no, my dear young friends, we must join our voices with that blessed poet, June Jordan, and demonstrate that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Blessed be, let's do it, amen. stay standing. What a surprise. And I'm going to invite our seminarians to come forward. 
I'm going to invite our worship associate to come forward. I'm going to invite the, our director of Lifespan Religious Education to come forward. We're going to hold hands, and I'm going to invite everybody to hold hands. How's that? How precious this moment that we have with one another. How precious the lives that we in this room live. How precious the lives of all the souls around us, all the souls around us. How blessed we are when we are called to engage one another, to engage our own conscience, to engage our sense of generosity and possibility. How blessed we will be when we stand with one another, when we roll with one another, when we breathe and find the way forward that all of us know the power and the joy of being human at this very moment. We extinguish the light of this chalice, but we will never extinguish the joy that each of us is called to own and the happiness that all of us are called to find. Amen. We're going to sing Find a Stillness. It's in the gray hymnal. I'm going to ask us to sit down as we sing it. Um, this uh, little melody that Carl Seberg used has some shakes in it, and he would ask us not to be too assimilated um, and to not to smooth them out too much. But when we get to those da ba da ya dum ba da ya dum 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 da ya, really get those dias in there. All right, <laughs> Jim, we're with you. Someone tell me the number. 352.
And before Jim does the, the postlude, number one, I hope you've all read the musical notes. What an amazing composer, and we're so glad that Jim found him for us. Thank you, Jim. And tomorrow night, for people who want to have a place to process feelings, please come and join us. Michael, what time? Seven o'clock in Enoch Pratt Parish Hall, a chance for us to be with one another. All right, thank you.